Hello and welcome to The Money Movement. We are excited today to have Carrie Brees join us from NowRx. I've had a, the pleasure of watching NowRx over the past several years grow as a phenomenal growth story and really a, a partner and client that we've worked with for years. Uh, also joined here with Ryan Fight, co-host here on The Money Movement, focusing on issues in startups, startup growth, and the possibilities of using the internet to transform how finance works. And clearly, you know, Carrie, maybe you could just kick things off. I think you've got an amazing story for how you've built your business on the internet yourself. Your product is delivered partly on the internet, partly obviously in the quote unquote IRL in the, in the real world, but have really leveraged the internet as a financial platform as well. So maybe just to kick things off, it'd be great to just hear kind of high level uh, on the story of the company and, and how you've gotten to where you are today. Yeah, great. Thanks for uh, having me here, Jeremy. And good to see you again, Ryan. We knew we wanted to transform the healthcare industry and we started looking at, at pharmacy and exactly what you said, Jeremy, really struck us right from the very beginning that internet is powering uh, more and more consumer services. And if you can find the right blend of offline and online functions and capabilities, you can really create a fantastic new customer experience. And that's really what we try to do at NowRx. We're a digital first company, but we do have uh, some hard assets and delivery capabilities and fulfillment centers. And that's really the way we see uh, kind of the, the modern consumer experience trending. And you're right, the way we raised money uh, for our startup companies, a, a, a bit new as well, and, and perhaps a bit innovative and something that we, we've partnered with Ryan with way back in the very beginning under the JOBS Act and uh, Regulation A equity crowdfunding. And our first round was, uh, I think, back in 2017, if memory serves. And uh, we never look back, right? It's, uh, it's a brave new world. A lot of new uh, opportunities exist now for people to get involved in investing in cryptocurrency and startup, early stage startups. Uh, and so it, it's uh, certainly an interesting convergence. I'm curious, Carrie. So I know this isn't your first successful startup. And I think it'd be helpful for the audience to kind of hear about your entrepreneurial journey, maybe leading up to NowRx, and I guess more specifically, what it was like for your prior startup raising capital traditionally. Yeah, I'm a multi-time entrepreneur. Uh, started out with electrical engineering degree. I, I got interested in finance. I ended up working for an insurance company. And my, my first startup uh, was in the insurance space, uh, doing a lot of automation. And you know, back then... The internet was uh, just starting out. We were doing things like XML and thought we were really kind of advanced. This is early kind of 2000s. But, you know, just automating legacy industries is, is something that I've, I've always been interested in and started out uh, doing that in the insurance industry, automating underwriting and quoting processes and claims processing. I sold that company after about seven years and uh, made a little bit of money uh, not, not enough to retire on, but uh, it, was, it was enough to uh, try some more startup ventures. And we went into uh, a more of a technology space, a database company uh, called GenieDB, where we uh, were trying to automate how you launch applications in multi-cloud environments. This is when kind of cloud computing was first coming into its own. And for that company, you know, we, we really struggled to raise venture capital, frankly, to answer your point. 
Brian, you know, the, I think historically for entrepreneurs trying to start companies and, and get funding, there's really only been one path for most of time. And that's uh, going to professional venture capitalists. And I always thought that was uh, somewhat limiting. It is sort of, you know, been the norm and most entrepreneurs have plenty of stories about working with VCs and venture capitals. The capitalists serve a, a huge need for our society. They've, they've certainly launched a lot of great companies, but it's sort of just one method and it's always been a certain way. And there's some idiosyncrasies with it. It's not always necessarily entrepreneur friendly. It can be uh, somewhat onerous. In fact, you can have kind of, uh, you know, uh, investor friendly provisions around uh, dilution and ratchet provisions and valuations can sometimes be, you know, a little bit lopsided because an entrepreneur, maybe not knowing better is going up against these big venture capitalists that have all the money, have all the power. And and so it's a little bit of an asymmetric uh, contest there. So uh, the company GenieDB, we never really got off the ground because we we just couldn't get it funded. We had a bunch of customers that were raving about the product, uh, but to scale the business, we needed capital and uh, we just couldn't get out of, the, out of the gate with that one. So uh, I learned a lot from that experience. And when we decided to to start now our X, you know, we were certainly open-minded to other forms of, of capital raising. And, and that's when I met Ryan and uh, the rest is history. Got it. It's been pretty interesting. I think you're one of the very few companies that has sort of taken your entire life cycle through direct, you know, internet capital raising on the, on the internet, maybe just for, for the audience's benefit, maybe just talk about the number of raises you've done, how much capital you've done, you know, kind of sequentially over time, and then sort of how that kind of ties to the the growth of the business. Yeah, we raised uh, some seed funding initially to to really get the proof of concept up and running. I was uh, about three million dollars, and a lot of that was family and friends, sort of traditional. You know, go ask everyone you know for twenty five thousand bucks, and we did that for a couple of years, but. About a million dollars of that was so-called crowdfunded with uh, Regulation CF, uh, which we did with with Seed Invest and Ryan under Circle before Circle's time. But and then uh, you know we had really good success with that. One thing we learned about the NowRx story is as a delivery pharmacy and creating this kind of world-class customer experience, we noticed that you know regular customers and uh, just retail type of investors. Uh, the concept really resonated with them. And so we took a leap of faith and uh, went out to raise a Series A. And this was after, you know, talking to quite a few venture capitalists again and, you know, getting some term sheets we weren't really comfortable with, uh, valuations not really, we thought that fair and getting some, you know, again, sort of investor-friendly terms that weren't necessarily in our our best advantage and kind of giving up control of the business. So we we put together a Series A that was a $7 million raise in an equity crowdfunding environment on the Seed Invest platform. We closed that round in four months and you know it was spectacular. It was great interacting with uh, retail type of investors. Uh, you know, Seed Invest has a great forum where you can comment and interact with investors and ask, you know, answer questions about the company. And we were so successful with that Series A of $7 million that we went out and uh, decided to do a Series B. And that raise was $20 million. We were oversubscribed. We ended up raising $21.5 million in equity crowdfunding. And that was a record. That was a record for Seed Invest and uh, certainly for us. And we're just the whole industry. 
the whole industry as well, right? So that really told me that the world has changed. You know, you look at what's happening with uh, Robinhood and uh, all these other, uh, you know, opportunities for retail investors. Cryptocurrency, I think, has brought in a lot of retail investors as well into currency trading. And you just see the trends going that way. And so with that behind our behind our backs, we uh, are now engaged in a, a Series C and we're targeting a $50 million raise in, in equity crowdfunding. We're already at $16 million plus. So I think we'll break the last record, Ryan. I would be shocked if you don't. I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what we end up at. But it's amazing. I mean, this sort of the theme of, you know, sort of democratization of the financial system, democratization to how access to capital, democratization and opening up for individuals to participate in in capital. And that sort of animates, I think, you know, Circle and Seed Invest and and the like. You know, I mean, in your view, obviously you're you're growing the business, right? At the end of the day, people are investing because you're having success in growing the business. But you've built this relationship with investors and your customers and and the like that's really, really different. I don't think there's, you know, I'm trying to think out loud, like how many businesses are there that from day one basically built the business with their investors and but where you're talking about the the broader customer base as well, even being stakeholders in a way, people talk about kind of stakeholder capitalism. That can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But the idea that, you know, your customers and your shareholders and the ecosystem you're in can all be connected and grow value together is a really powerful concept, not just, you know, pension funds that put money into venture capital firms or or what have you. And there's sort of a directness to that. Have you had, I'd be interested in, in stories you might be able to share about the kinds of relationships that you have with customer slash investors and, and how has that informed how you think about building the business? And do you think it's a competitive advantage for you at some level? Yeah, I agree with all your comments there. I'll maybe just add on to that and then answer your question uh, more directly. But uh, you know, I look at it this way. We're trying to build a national brand, right? For our, for now, our X, we want to be a national company. We're expanding throughout the country now. Started out at one location in Northern California. We now have eight locations throughout uh, Northern and Southern California and Arizona. We've just signed leases for new locations in Colorado and Nevada and Washington and Texas. And so we're on a great path, but it's still a bit of work and can be daunting at times to really build that brand recognition, right? You're When you're a startup, you're going up against incumbents that have more brand recognition and more brand power and probably more financial resources. So as an entrepreneur, I always try to think about, you know, what are the best ways to build that brand in the most efficient way? And for me, crowdfunding, one of the biggest benefits is that every investor that can, comes into our round through equity crowdfunding becomes a brand ambassador, right? And that, that's just a given. That's the way it works. And so we have plenty of anecdotes of investors that have spread the word for NowRx, introduced us to maybe their doctor, maybe their friends and family, maybe they live in a, another town where we don't yet have a service area, but they're they're asking for us to uh, start a location there, right? So we have this, uh, one of our features on our website is, you know, tell us where you want to launch another NowRx location. So we're, we're preceding territories where we don't even exist yet by having this, you know, broad base of now 10,000 plus brand ambassadors that are investors. Uh, I just 
this last week, Jeremy, I had an investor slash customer introduce me to a, a group of physicians that was really interested in better medication management, uh, preventative medicine. And we, we've had that conversation and I think we're going to partner with us. So, you know, what a, what a great, uh, powerful force that is as you're kind of growing a company. And, you know, for me, if you, if you look at the long-term play, it always made a lot of sense. And, you know, when I talked to Ryan about this in the early days, I think the SEC was really smart to kind of create this new category of company where you can access capital from retail investors, which ordinarily was only open to private public companies, right? With publicly paid stock. And, you know, you look at public, big public companies, they have a lot of what we're talking about, right? They have customers that are investors, uh, but that's not usually available to a startup company. And so this emerging growth company concept under regulation A, I think is, is really a, a powerful hybrid between the private company world and the public company world and puts now our X on a glide path to become a public company because we've already built support from retail investors and that's who we'll be dealing with when we go to an IPO one day. Yeah. I had, I had a, a couple of related questions. One was like, you know, part of the, now that you're doing reg, reg A deals like this and bigger, et cetera, the kind of registrations, the financial disclosures, the other things, there's more there. And I know for most closely held private companies and most venture-backed startups, like you don't have to tell anyone what your revenue is. You don't have to tell them, you know, what your, what, what's in your P&L, how, how are your expenses trending? Like, the, you know, it's, it's sort of, that's one of the reasons why I think a lot of founders have been reticent. Like, oh, I don't want to have to like, you know, go, go out there with that. But at, at the same time, right, it's good discipline, right? It's like, it's good discipline to say like, here's my business, here's the details. I'm willing to tell the world, you know, what, what this is. And that, like you said, it gets you ready to be a public company, but how has it been, you know, kind of as a private company CEO, you know, being out there and being more transparent about the business than most private company CEOs have to do? It's definitely more work, uh, but you're, you're right. hundred percent agree with what you said. It's, it's really good discipline. And, and frankly, I see it even a little bit more than that. I mean, I, I think that the private company environment with private investors where they don't have to disclose things and they can frankly, you know, they can make projections that are as outlandish as they want. And, and frankly, in my view, this is my personal opinion. I think that creates even more and more dysfunction because there's almost an incentive in the private investing world for entrepreneurs to make extreme and outlandish claims about their product or their future. I mean, we all read the news and, you know, companies like Theranos and Biome. I mean, these are, these are signs to me of the dysfunction that's in the private investment market. And the VCs, unfortunately, almost create an incentive for entrepreneurs to, to lose discipline and to become just completely, you know, outrageous with their projections. And so I've never had a problem with that. My style has always been more direct and transparent as a, as a business person. And so it's more work, but it is good discipline. I am building a company towards an IPO. What better way to get ready than start, start getting ready now, right? Start getting audited financials now. Start, start building those financial controls. And it's way better for society at large. It's way better for investors. There's much more transparency there. Seed Invest plays a great role for investors in being that vetting organization to even add more discipline 
so I, I welcomed all of it, but I agree with you. Maybe not all all entrepreneurs would be as comfortable with that, but they should be. You know, my message to them is embrace it, do the extra work, and the reward will be there. Yeah, one of the other I think benefits too that companies like yours and others will, will probably find when they do go public is one of the challenges that people often hear from New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ is that they just don't have enough shareholders, especially if they're trying to do a direct public offering, right, where one of the requirements is you have a certain shareholder base. And so if you actually have gone through crowdfunding and regulation A+, plus, I mean, you'll, Carrie, you'll have 20,000 plus investors at the end of this easily. That's pretty unique and pretty powerful. It gives you more optionality. It is. And I mean, I, I think from a, if you're an underwriter, I would imagine that gives you some confidence that this company has already demonstrated itself and built up support from retail investors in that number, like you said, in the tens of thousands. And uh, that's a boost of confidence when going out in the public market, for sure. I'm curious, you know, we, a few months ago, made an investment in Crowdcube, who I, I, I'm pretty sure you know, who's sort of the leading online fundraising platform over in the UK and expanding into Europe uh, rapidly this year. And um, so one of the things that we're excited about is being able to enable you know companies in the US and also companies in the UK and Europe be able to raise capital globally that you know down the line, you know we think that fundraising for startups and frankly probably all alternatives should be shouldn't just be regional and it should be more global in nature. I'd love your thoughts on, you know, obviously you're expanding into Texas, you're not expanding into Europe quite yet, but hopefully in the future, you know, how you think about that idea of being able to, you know, tap another million plus potential investors across the ponds. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. I, I agree with you. Uh, I think this is a global opportunity, certainly for NowRx and absolutely for investing as well. We had some experience uh, with Crowdcube that was very positive, had a good interaction with sophisticated retail investors uh, in the UK. I get asked all the time, uh, and, and you know as well, Ryan, that you know there's a, a steady flow of in, you know, wannabe investors in this space and, and in just crowdfunding in general from a multitude of countries. So the more we can globalize this, the better. I'm all for it. I wanted to come back to um, another, well, a theme that we kind of touched on earlier, which is about kind of some of the things that really differentiate how you operate and grow a startup when you're building it on on crowdfunding or and and building it you know by building this internet investor base and and it's really tied to in private companies typically with venture capital investors you sometimes can get you know misaligned incentives right or there's control provisions or governance mechanisms or or other things that can be challenging for management and you know, I'm curious, you know, has this changed how you manage your board of directors? Does it change how you think about independent board members? Or you is this a sort of more tightly held? And I guess related is, you know, does this allow you to take a longer term view uh, versus, you know, maybe firms that have, you know, feel like they got to do something for their LPs now? Does it allow you to, how does it change how you kind of govern the company in a sense? Well, definitely on the long-term versus short-term strategy, there's no question in my mind that doing, uh, you know, raising capital through crowdfunding and ha has given us more control over our own destiny. We, our board has remained relatively small, com you know, compared to other companies that are, are taking on one or two uh, venture capitalist partners every round, right? So that, that's quite a big board. 
with board members that, as you point out, may may not necessarily have their interests aligned with what you as the entrepreneur or founder uh, might have for the company. And, you know, certainly in healthcare, you know, venture capital in Silicon Valley has not had a really great track record. And part of that is, I believe, a, a short-term focus, right? The average life cycle of a venture capital firm is seven years. Uh, by the time you're getting an investment from them, they're probably two or three years into that fund already. And, you know, you're looking at a really short time frame. and, their focus then becomes grow at all costs, you know, and growing at all costs has some costs. And so we've tried really hard to build a company that has lasting power. We want to build this national brand and a national company in a $450 billion industry. That takes some time, right? And that's okay with us. We we love what we do. We run to work every day and we want to build the company and, and focus on things like the best customer experience and and things that we want to focus on. And sure, we want to grow, but we don't want to grow at all costs. We don't want to grow at the cost of uh, reducing the customer experience below what we think is uh, acceptable or grow beyond what our systems and platforms can handle at that time, right? So we want to scale methodically and carefully and deliberately. And we're growing really fast. I mean, we grew from 7 million to 14 million to 22 million and we'll be you know, north of 35 million this year. So we're growing fast. Yeah, that's awesome. But we're not, we don't feel outside pressure or other people that we have to satisfy with our growth. We're, we're happy with our own growth where it is and uh, we're focusing on the things that we, we want to focus on. So yeah, I think, I think board governance actually becomes more manageable uh, under crowdfunding. And, and certainly you can keep a, a longer term focus if that's, if that's what you want. Makes a lot of sense. Carrie, I'm curious, you talked about the fact that at some point your goal is to go public. And I know you hired a CFO who's taken a couple, CFO has taken a couple um, companies public in the past. How are you sort of thinking about when the right time is for that? Um, what, what do you think you know, the company needs to sort of accomplish prior to doing that? And a second part of the question would be, to the extent our space in terms of online fundraising is able to provide options for secondary markets a lot earlier in a company's life cycle is that something that you think would be interesting you know if you were doing it over again so two-part question yeah when do you write for an ipo uh we could talk about that all day long probably but i think in in just a, if a few bullet items one of the things we want to make sure we have in place is the right level of financial controls right so i brought in the cfo as you pointed out mark marlowe Phenomenal C CFO. He's he's taking a, a several med medical technology companies public, so he knows the space, and he's been really almost a founder in the companies that he's taken public, from kitchen table all the way to IPO. So, really thankful he's joined the company. Uh, Mark's working on bringing in Deloitte and Touche uh, as an auditor, so we're gonna we're we're up in our uh, you know financial audit. We've been an audited company. Uh, but now we're bringing in a you know a big four. We're migrating off of uh, you know QuickBooks onto a uh, Microsoft Dynamics uh, accounting system. So there's a number of things. We also brought in a controller. So there's a number of things on the financial side to get ready for that financial reporting burden that comes with uh, being a public company. And this takes you know a year or so to to develop fully. So uh, that's in motion. 
As far as the business operations side, you know, there's a lot of uh, kind of kitchen table talk sometimes about or barroom talk about, you know, do you need 100 million in revenue or 200 million? There's 50 million enough. What's what's the right kind of float size? I'm not sure. I think, as you pointed out earlier, you know, with 20,000 plus investors already under our belt, I think we might have different parameters that we need to hit. Personally, I'd like to see the business grow a little bit more and and have more of a national presence. I think that'll be a better story and and a little bit more, you know, we'll get a little more support from from public markets. But then the other wild card is what are public markets doing, right? I wouldn't, I don't think I would go out today (laughs) if that was an option. But, uh, you know, it's hard to predict what the market's going to do in the future. So, I mean, the environment has to be right as well. Second part was, um, you know, today as a private company, there is there is really no actual secondary market for companies to allow their shares to trade. You know, there's some platforms like Forge and EquityZen and others that um, Nasdaq private markets where you can do tender offers and people can kind of sell their shares one off through more of a brokered process. But there is no liquid secondary marketplace for private securities. You see a lot of stuff in the crypto markets that operate pretty effectively, but not really with you know traditional private securities. If you were doing it again, and let's say in five years, there is a liquid secondary market and you have 20,000 shareholders, do you think that's something that would you would entertain in terms of doing it, allowing secondary market liquidity prior to an IPO, you know, a few years ago, let's say? Yeah, we've, uh, you know, you've, you've mentioned that in the past as, as something that might be, you know, an interesting concept. Uh, I, I think it certainly has some merit. It'd be interesting to see. I, I haven't been following that part of the market, like you mentioned, there are some platforms already that uh, kind of dabble in pre-IPO uh, stock and uh, privately held uh, type of stock. So I imagine that would be successful if uh, the right company could pull that together. And I, I would think you would be in a really great position to do that. And, and who knows, our IPO may be several years off. Uh, we may decide to keep building the company. And if we get good access to capital, that's certainly... Uh, a possibility. Uh, you notice I didn't give you a deadline on when we think we're going IPO. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, you know, secondary might be an interesting option for for some of the existing shareholders to, to get a chance to get some return on their money. I just kind of coming back to just this this overall model as you look back on how you executed this in the past, and and you're obviously in in the middle of a capital raise right now. But but kind of looking back, are the things that you would have done differently if you're giving advice to a new a startup founder? Who's considering this for the first time? You know, what are the major, what are the major kind of things that you think make this work well, or things that were challenging? You know, just some some advice for founders out there that that are inspired by what you've been able to do and, and considering it themselves. Yeah, I, I get a few calls uh, because of you know our record round that we raised last time uh, does prompt a few calls and from people trying to look for some advice. And my, my advice is usually fairly simple. It's two or three things to try to focus on. If you're an entrepreneur and you're thinking about crowdfunding, uh, number one, pick a good platform like Seedinvest. You know, not all the platforms are the same. Um, I think they have a really great approach to the business and the transparency that they bring to the process, I think is, is really part of it. And I think for the entrepreneur, you know, embrace that same transparency about your company also, you know, boil boil your message down so it can be digested by someone who's not a professional investor. 
looking at 20 pitches every day, right? It's a, it's a different kind of story and messaging that is required when you're going out to a retail investor in a crowdfunding environment. So try to keep that in mind when you're creating your messaging and, and the, the storyline around the company. I recommend entrepreneurs try to get traction as early as possible, right? Because traction in the marketplace with a product or a service is, is the currency of the realm. You got to have track record if you can at all get that. Uh, run out to as many customers as you can, even if it's just feedback on a survey or a what if or a freemium model, whatever it is, start building traction and, and feedback. And, and you can then talk about that. Uh, and investors really respond to that. And then the last one is, you know, don't be afraid to really promote your round. I think a lot of entrepreneurs hear about crowdfunding without knowing much about it and, and think it's sort of a build it and they will come. And companies like Circle and Seedinvest certainly have a, a large community of investors that are, are looking at uh, your profile when you first set it up. But you, know, you also should be willing to go out there and promote your round uh, to your own customers, to uh, even through your own marketing effort and really, really put some effort into the promotion of it because you're you're trying to get to a wide audience and all of that investment in, in that marketing and promotion is going to come back to you. And what we talked about earlier, right? Every, every investor you can go grab is, is another brand invest, uh, brand ambassador. So it's worth the time and effort to go build up a really big base of, of people that are following your company and investing and talking about your company. And uh, so it's sort of a, a virtuous cycle and it's, it's a worthwhile effort. Makes a ton of sense. Very cool. Well, you know, Terry, this is uh, just an uh, exciting time in the history of you know, internet capital formation, and you're trying to set a new record in that, I, or I think on track for that. And it's been so exciting to watch. And I think I'm sure there's going to be another chapter of this as you experiment with, you know, whether it be secondary markets or what, what it is to, you know, transition from private to public over time. And there's so much, so much to learn and share here. And, uh, you know, just Really appreciate all of, uh, all of your support as a customer as well for working with Seed Invest and Circle. Well, thanks, Jeremy, and uh, you know I really enjoyed the journey with uh, with Circle and Seed Invest and Ryan. Uh, you know, can't thank you enough. It's it's been a fun ride, and uh, we we got a few few more rides uh, to go in the future. I'm sure. Likewise, I mean, we actually just to kind of close that gap. We had actually two of our portfolio companies that have gone public in the last few months, and. It, I think it was really rewarding for the CEOs of those companies to have these thousands of investors that have never been able to invest a single dollar in private companies before actually, you know, get a really good return. Never been done before. And, and the magnitude of hopefully, fingers crossed, what will happen with now or X setting these record, these record, these records for online fundraising and, you know, to hopefully have 20,000 plus people that actually have a really good outcome will be, I think, really rewarding and, and exciting. So thanks for everything, Carrie. It was great talking to you. I, I have a, one last comment, which is a, a fun story, which is before Circle and Seed Invest were in business together, I learned about you know NowRx by looking at Seed Invest and, and made an investment. So I'm a very happy early stage investor in your business. And, uh, you know, that I think, you know, seeing what you've been able to do, you know, in, in inspired me as well. So I'm a grateful shareholder as well. That's great to hear, Jeremy. Thanks for the support. And uh, let's see if we can make that investment worth a whole lot of money. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks, Gary. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Bye.